Hello, welcome to Wake the Bride podcast. My name is Luke Beats. Um, in Romans 13, 11 through 12, the Apostle Paul states, And that knowing the time, that it is now high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. It is my goal to help stir a sleeping church and motivate weary believers by looking at current events, Bible prophecy, and apologetics. Hopefully, by the end of each episode, we can better see as Jesus did in John 4 and 35. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest. Last week, uh, we did a quick overview of um, the three most general and basic, uh, really most common views of eschatology or end-time events. Uh, we looked at just a very brief overview of amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Now, this week, I want to start um, going in maybe a little more in-depth, not too terribly in-depth. I don't want to get too far into the weeds and get lost. Uh, on the three different views. Uh, I want to dedicate this program um, specifically to amillennialism. So what is amillennialism? Amillennialism is a doctrinal stance which teaches that there will be no millennial reign of the righteous on earth physically. Amillennialists interpret the thousand years symbolically to refer to either a temporary bliss of souls in heaven before the general resurrection or to the infinite bliss of the righteous after the general resurrection. Um, some proponents also would they would prefer, they really don't like the name amillennialism, they would say that, that really that is something that was just put on them, that name is, and all it does is shows um, maybe a negative belief. And some would even say that they do believe in the millennial. Uh, reign, they would view it much different than we would. They would say, yes, it is symbolic. It's not literal. It's not on earth. Uh, but some would prefer, and I'm trying to pronounce this, and hopefully I do correctly, um, would prefer alternate names such as NUNC, uh, N-U-N-C, uh, millennialism. Uh, that is now millennialism. Or some would prefer the term realized millennialism. Uh, and although these um, uh, other names have achieved only limited acceptance and usage, so they're not near as popular as all millennial. And most people would, if they hold to this view, would just say, I'm an all millennialist. Um, all mills, when it comes to how they interpret, and uh, getting back to explaining what exactly it is, all mills, and I'm going to say all mills, not trying to be disrespectful whatsoever, but it's just a little easier than saying all millennialism, all millennialist. Um, I may use that term a little bit, but generally I'm just going to use the term amil. Um, Amils take a more historical and symbolic view in interpreting prophecy, um, especially in relation to Revelation chapter 20, the passage which directly deals with the millenniums. With the millennium, Amils would seek, uh, in relation to that passage, to say that it is simply one of several recappings or recap. Hmm stick with that word, or recapitulations uh, of the same time period. Uh, rather than looking at the book of Revelation as dealing with ongoing periods of time, 
And Amiel would assert that it is all the same period of time, not not successive, ongoing periods where it's linear time, but it is simply the recapping or recapitulation of the same period of time over and over. Uh, specifically, the time period they would say that is dealt with would be the time period between the birth of Christ or Christ's first coming and his second comings. Um, therefore, in all millennialism, Revelation 20 does not refer to a single time period at the very end of the church in history, but rather it is a special perspective um, on the entirety of church history. Uh, you need to catch that right there. Where it, it, is, it does not refer to a single time period at the very end of church history, but instead it is a special perspective on the entirety of church history. Um, Almels also hold that in some form, Satan has been bound uh, since the resurrection of Jesus. Some would, some would try and go a little further and say, well, maybe uh, he's been bound since 70 AD, but really um, most are going to hold to the fact that when Jesus was resurrected, um, at that point, that Satan was bound. And really, I, that's the only way they can get any, in my opinion, um, a lot of Bible, any Bible for it. Uh, but anyway, I'm not going to do a critique of it just yet. Um, I want to look at, get more of what they believe and what they're saying. Uh, some among this system say that the binding of Satan, that this binding refers to Satan not being able to bring about the final battle mentioned in verse 10 of Revelation uh, 20. Um, in the same passage, until the time appointed. Others, and I believe this would probably be more of the majority view, others in this same system hold that Satan is bound and that he can no longer hinder the spread of the gospel. In other words, he can't, um, he's not blinding the minds of people. He, he's not, um, he doesn't have the power to, uh, uh, I guess you'd say, so to speak, slow, not through persecution, because they would say the church does get persecuted, but it does not in a spiritual sense. Satan does not, in a spiritual sense, have the ability to hinder or slow the spread of the gospel um, through spiritual means. Um, some among this system, uh, as I said, some among it, they'll look at, this and say, no, it just has to do with that final battle that's mentioned in verse 10. But as I said, that's really not the predominant view. Um, they would say that whenever you look at the passage and you see what comes right after the loosing of Satan, what he does, you know, he get, brings that battle about, he deceives the nations to bring about the battle. Um, I said, that's not, that's, I haven't found that to be a predominant view. It is a view, so we do mention it. But for the most part, they're going to say that Satan is bound and that he can no longer hinder spread of the gospel. In other words, the gospel can go forth, it can be proclaimed, it can be uh, spread rapidly. Um, they would view this in that sense, that that would be the most predominant view. But when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, Amiel's would see only one general resurrection consisting of both the righteous and the wicked. When confronted with a specific reference to a first and second resurrection mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, um, 
there are two very common ways that they would explain this. Since they say there's only one resurrection, and just a general resurrection, and whenever you point, when, whenever they get to the passage of Revelation 20, and it speaks of a first resurrection and a second resurrection, they would explain this by saying um, in two ways. They would, the first would say that the first resurrection is spiritual, not physical, and refers to the new birth or salvation, in which a sinner that is spiritually dead in sin is transformed into a Christian that is spiritually alive in Christ. The second resurrection, on the other hand, is bodily or physical and refers to a resurrection of an actual human body from death to life. Um, the second view taken by Amiels in explaining the first and second resurrection mentioned, um, again in Revelation chapter 20 verses 4 through 6, is to say that they are both spiritual and neither refer to an actual, literal coming back to physical life from the dead. Um, I will admit that this second view, uh, as I was reading it, trying to study it, trying to get it to where I could explain what their thought on this was and how they interpreted this, um, I had a little trouble with that, with this view. Uh, it was a little more complex, not so much complex as, I mean, I'll, let the cat out of the bag. This is not my eschatological view. It's not how I believe the end times. And I, I didn't really understand. Not said it. Yeah, I, it didn't make sense to me to say that both of these would be uh, spiritual, that in no way that there's a physical um, resurrection. Uh, but I do want to mention, and again, it's not really a hugely predominant view, um, but it is an attempt to show consistency by saying that both resurrections are spiritual and neither um, are physical. Amils also teach that scripture seems to imply that there are but two ages, uh, especially mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, first, this current age, which we live now after the death, uh, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and then um, th this age would stretch all the way to the second coming of Jesus. Um, the second age would come, um, that, that is to come, is the eternal state, which is entered into at the return, immediately at the return of Jesus. As all mills hold that the second coming of Jesus is the end, and there will be no literal millennial reign on earth of Jesus and the saints, um, proceeding, <clears throat> excuse me, or following his return, but rather and entering in to the, to the eternal state that will start as soon or immediately upon the second coming, the return of Jesus. But because they would say that there's no millennial reign, there's no, uh, nothing that, that has to happen exactly preceding, in other words, they wouldn't say there's a millennial reign preceding the return of Christ, and they wouldn't say there's a millennial reign following the reign of Christ, they have no problem saying that the second coming of Jesus may be at hand. Though they would not, as premillennials, spend a lot of time, generally they would not spend a lot of time looking at signs, uh, trying to understand the, the signs of the times. They wouldn't do that. But they would have no problem saying that the second coming of Jesus may be at hand. Um, lastly, 
all males do not generally hold to the optimistic outlook of, on the future of the world being redeemed and conquered by the gospel like the post-millennialist. Um, and Amil will have no problem with the success of the gospel in spreading across the globe, but at the same time, they, unlike the post-millennialists, do not see this as a required happening. Um, however, Amils do not necessarily believe that the world has to experience the extreme moral and social downfall like the premillennialists. Just like the spreading of the gospel across the, all the world, the Amil would say that moral and social degradation may happen, but it is not required. To fit their model or plan. So, in other words, they would say that the post-millennial, I don't want to get too far into this because I intend on doing an episode on this, may, hopefully next week. I'm not 100% sure. There's a couple of things I'm looking at, but right now my plan is to look at post-millennialism next week. But the post-millennial would say that um, before Christ returns, the spread of the gospel goes across the world. Maybe some might say that all of the world is saved. Others would say that, no, it's going to be maybe a tipping point is reached. Um, the majority of the churches of, of the world is saved. Um, and then this ushers in the millennium, the church, uh, through the saints, you know, through Christianity, through the church, uh, rules the world. And after that millennial period, uh, which they wouldn't say is exactly a thousand years. Anyway, I don't went too far into this. Um, they would say that then the church gives the kingdom over to Christ. But the amillennial would say, maybe the gospel spreads over the whole world. Maybe it does. But at the same time, they would say it doesn't have to. And so some might say, yes, the gospel will spread across the world, whereas others would say, no, I don't think it will. Um, at the same time, some have accused this of being a very pessimistic view. And Really, they would they would make the statement just like as I said, just like with the spread of the gospel, they would say, "Well, maybe the world is going to get awful. Maybe things are going to get worse and worse and worse, but maybe not. Maybe things will get better. Maybe things will get worse." Um, either way, really, in their mind and in their way of looking at this, it would fit. <coughs> excuse me, it would fit their model. Um, I want to be fair. And I want to admit that since I'm not an amillennialist, I'm not the best at defending this position. Um, however, I, I've done my best through study to honestly and fairly present the amill position. Um, I've listened to uh, different uh, ministers, listened to Sam, Sam Storm, um, Dr. Sam Storm, as he has explained this, I've listened to uh, Vody Bakum as he has explained his views on uh, amillennialism. I've tried to read different books, tried to um, go through different um, theological, uh, systematic theologies, tried to go through different digestive theologies to get a good view and to be able to present this view uh, fairly and justly. Because really, Throughout church history, there have been a lot of people uh, that have been very influential in Christianity that have taken this view and that have held this view. Um, it really began to regain a lot of its popularity 
um, after World War One, after World War Two, uh, when really before that, postmillennialism had really been on the march and on the rise. Uh, those two events put a little damper, I guess you could say, on postmillennialism, saying that everything was getting better and better, the gospel was spreading and conquering the world. Um, those two events didn't really help that cause very much. But it did tend to uh, reignite, maybe, an interest in amillennialism, a view that said maybe the gospel will spread and maybe it won't, maybe things are going to get worse, maybe it won't. Um, it did spur a renewal in that view and in that vein. Uh, sorry about that. An alarm go off right there. I thought I had that turned off. Bad job on my part. Um, anyway. Uh, anyway. However, I've done my best to honestly and fairly present the all-male position. That being said, I really, I readily admit I do not agree with the all-male position. It is not the position that I hold. Um, therefore, I do want to take a few minutes to point out a few of my reasons for disagreeing with it. Um, I think that it is a, before I get into my reasons against it, I would say that it is a, generally speaking, a more simplified view. And I'm not saying that like it's simple and simple-minded. I mean, it is it does simplify the um, prophetic future. It does simplify the end times and its approach to the end times and how um, everything works out. Uh, and some people really like that. They like that clean cut and that uh, um, very simple um, working out of eschatology or the end times. But for me, when you begin to look at what they're saying and what they're believing, it, it doesn't fit, in my opinion. But anyway. Um, everyone has an opinion, and that's fine. Uh, but I, I believe I have scripture to back up my contentions against amillennialism. And again, I, I want to also state that just because I'm saying I have contentions with it or I have disagreements with it, I'm not saying, um, and no, no one should say that because someone holds to amillennialism that they are a heretic, that um, somehow their salvation has been negated, that uh, somehow they've lost their salvation. That would be wrong. That would be false. Um, just because someone holds a different eschatological view than you or than me in no way makes him less of a Christian. Um, I believe as long as, the, as, as we understand that there is a return of Christ, as long as it is held, uh, as it has been throughout history, uh, what has been the orthodox position is that in some way or form, Jesus will return bodily. As the angels said when Jesus ascended up to heaven there in Acts, and the apostles, the disciples, they're standing there, they're watching Jesus ascend, and the the two men appear, the two angels appear in white, and they, they make the statement, they ask them, you know, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus that you see go away in like manner will come again. So really the point of orthodoxy or the point of truth is the fact that Jesus is returning. And all males believe this. All males would, all would say, yes, Jesus will return to earth. Jesus will return. 
Um, there are some views, and I really want to get into this one a little bit more uh, when we look at postmillennialism. Uh, there are, there is, and I mentioned it last week, uh, preterism. There's a partial preterist and a full preterist. A partial preterist would say that most all, if not all, of Bible prophecy except the second coming has been fulfilled, and they would uh, tie it directly to the destruction of Israel, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That would be a partial preterist. A full preterist would say that the entirety of prophecy has been fulfilled, including the second coming. Um, with that one, I have a little more problem because you're denying that they would be denying, the way I understand their statements, they would be denying a second coming of Christ. I have a little bit of problem with that one. Um, uh, but all males, back on topic, all millennialists would not deny a second coming of Christ. In fact, they would say that that is the last event. You have the second coming of Christ. Uh, you have the judgment, which I guess you would say spurs the last events. Um, the second coming of Christ brings about the final judgment, which after that is done, immediately is followed. And that is a key thing. Immediately after that judgment, follows the entrance into the eternal state in which a person is either in uh, in the presence of God forever in bliss or they are tormented in, in the lake of fire, death and hell are cast into it, and immediately this happens. Now, my first contention with the all-mill position is that it takes, way, in my opinion, way too much liberty in declaring too much of prophecy as symbolic. While I agree that prophetic passages do use symbolism, if you remember in the very first episode uh, where we talked about um, why we should study Bible prophecy, uh, we made mention of the fact that, yes, there is symbolism used there. Um, but this doesn't mean all of it is symbolic. Uh, and, and I believe that all mills, whenever they look at prophecy, they really take too much liberty. They really have too much free reign and just say, ah, all of it's symbolic, or this is symbolic and this isn't. And it almost becomes arbitrary at times. And while, I, as I said, I agree, there is symbolism in prophecy, this does not give me the license to go on to interpret the symbolism any way I want. As I've stated in previous episodes, generally uh, the things that are truly symbolic are interpreted either in the same chapter um, the same book, or in another area, or in another area of Bible prophecy, and generally, when it's in that prophetic scripture, just not just in the same book, the same passage, the same chapter. When it's not there that it's interpreted, you're going to see that it forms a pattern throughout prophetic books that that maybe you know, like with beasts that are used. Generally speaking, and you'll see this if you go through Daniel, you go through Zechariah, you go through. Um, the different passages, in, especially in the Revelation, you'll see that most generally this speaks of a world power, a nation, um, an empire, and generally the text is going to bring that out as to how that is referring to it, and it forms a pattern throughout the entirety of prophetic scripture. Um, but just because symbolism is used does not mean that all prophecy is symbolic. Now, this would be a mistake to say, that, well, symbolism is used, therefore all of it is symbolic. And really, all mills go 
I would say a little too much in that direction. They lean a little too much that way. Um, it also appears at times that the lurch to symbolism of the Amiel that is out of convenience. Notice, for example, when Amiel's interpret Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 3, the Bible says there, And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, I'm not Satan, he must be loosed a little season. Amos are very quick to label any mention in this passage of Revelation 20, the, uh, to label any mention of a thousand years as symbolic. But then they will take the most strict and literal interpretation of why or in reference to what that binding says it has to do or deals with Satan. Um, in other words, they would say that the way that Satan is limited, when it comes to that, they take a very literal and the most strict sense rendering of the words possible. Um, to me, this really seems like cherry-picking to say that the words, in some cases, just exactly preceding the binding of Satan, well, that, that's figurative, that, that's symbolic, it doesn't really mean, mean that, we have to interpret that to mean something else, but this phrase, it is 100% the most strict and literal, and it means nothing but this. Um, in, my, in my looking at that, it really seems like cherry-picking what is and what is not symbolic. If it is possible to take a passage literal, then why not accept it as such? Um, as the saying goes, if the plain sense makes good sense, or makes common sense, then seek no other sense, lest ye end up in nonsense. And that is not original with me, that... Um, I was racking my brain to remember where I've heard that, but um, that is, I'm not claiming that as original with me, but that is a, that, that's a good, good rule when it comes to interpreting scripture, especially uh, prophecy. It doesn't all have to be prophetic. I mean, it has to be prophetic, but it's in prophecy. It doesn't have to be symbolic. Um, so if it's possible to take a passage literal, why not accept it as such? My second reason for disagreeing with Amiel is based upon cross-referencing ideas with Scripture. In other words, an idea may sound really good, but when you start comparing it to Scripture, and start trying to cross-reference, does this fit, does this fit? Uh, sometimes they don't. Um, for example, to say that Satan is bound and that he cannot deceive the nations relating to the spread of the gospel and thus hinder its spread does not match up with very clear Scripture on this um, idea. For, um, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Now catch this. Verse 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Right here, this is... Paul writing after, well after the resurrection of Christ. 
And he writes and he says that even now, the God of this God of this world blinds blinds the minds of them that are not believing. He puts um, he puts Satan, the God of this world, in direct responsibility. Not saying that the people don't have any responsibility for not believing. But he does put some of the blame on Satan, saying their, their minds have been blinded that they can't see because of Satan. Um, the Second Timothy, chapter number 2, verse 25 and 26. In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. If he is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations in relation to the gospel, he cannot um, hinder the spread of the gospel, then how can he blind their eyes or blind their minds so that they cannot see the gospel? How can they be in a snare of the devil and taken captive by him at his will? Um, let me give you one more. Ephesians chapter number two, verse number two. Word in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Again, to me, these these and other passages, is just a few, but these and other passages would seem to show us that Satan is loose. He has the ability to go about. He has, the, as the Bible says, for Satan, mm-hmm. he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Um, I would agree that God, I mean, I, mean, I almost even hate to say that. I would have to agree. I hate to even have to say that. But obviously, let me put it that way. Obviously, God is so much more powerful than Satan. And, and it would be wrong to look at it and say it's evenly matched. No, God is eternal. Satan is a created being. God is infinite. God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. God has all power. He is everywhere. He knows all things. Satan is not. He is a limited created being. But to say that he is bound in that he cannot and does not deceive people. You see what it says nation. The word nation there means um, eth- ethnics, um, ethnic groups. Um, so that he does not deceive people groups. It doesn't really line up with scripture. Um, my third reason for not being an amillennialist is because to me it seems quite clear that there is more than one resurrection. Um, I do not deny that there will be a final general resurrection of both righteous and wicked. And I really don't want to get too far into this either. Um, This will be uh, a major subject in uh, one of my upcoming um, episodes. But I do believe this is a big uh, problem for all millennialists. Um, so even though I don't deny there will be a final general resurrection made up of both righteous and wicked, however, I cannot biblically limit the resurrection to just this one event, just this one general resurrection. Now, to show this, I'm only going to note one passage from many. Because like I said, I don't want to get too far into this because this is going to be a major a part of one of my future subjects, future episodes. But 
suffice it to give you one one passage, John chapter five. And when really I believe they even meant they would look at this passage and try and say that see it shows a general resurrection, but really when you look at the wording, it doesn't. Uh, John chapter five, beginning with verse twenty-five. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all, that's, I think that's pretty key, in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. <clears throat> Excuse me. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Um, in verse 25, if you go back and look at that, only those that hear his voice, implying that not all hear it. It is also stated in verse 25 that all that hear the voice of God or hear the voice of Jesus, they have the same outcome. They live. It is a good outcome. However, when you get to verse 28 and 29, it is clearly stated that all hear his voice, not just some. If you look back at verse 25, it says that uh, uh, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. So it is going to be the dead hearing it, but not all of them. Uh, verse 28 and 29 specifically says that all that are in the grave, all of them are going to hear his voice. And then you're also going to notice that there is a mixture of outcomes here. The righteous, they are resurrected to life. The wicked, they are resurrected to damnation. But in verse 25, it said, if they hear his voice, they shall live. They're going to have a resurrection of life. In verse 28 and 29, the resurrection is some to life, some to damnation. I would say this is very clearly um, two resurrections spoken up here. Whenever you compare the verse 25 to 28 and 29, uh, it's not the same. Not all hear it in verse 25. In verse 28, all hear it. In verse 25, all of them that hear have that same good resurrection. They all live. In verse 29, the righteous are resurrected to life. They live. The wicked uh, are resurrected to damnation. They experience a second death. Um, my last reason that I want to point out here is glaringly obvious, in my opinion. Uh, and it just screams, I think, out in Revelation chapter 20 in that passage. Um, listen to what it says here. Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read verse 3, then I'm going to skip down to verse 7 through 10. Uh, and it says, And cast him, to about Satan, an angel comes down, binds him in a chain, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up 
on the breadth of the earth and passed the, the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, so you see that after the thousand years, after whatever stance, however symbolic you want it to be, this millennial reign, after it's over, at the end of it, the culmination of it, Satan, who had been bound so that he could not deceive, in verse 10 of the same passage, it says that he deceived the nation. So he is loosed and he deceives them at the end of the millennial reign. As I said, all millennialists would say that there is no literal millennial reign on earth. They would say the millennium refers to the bliss of those who have, who have died as Christians and they are now in heaven with Christ ruling and reigning over the earth from heaven. Um, or they would say that the millennial reign is the entirety, both in both sense, they would say that the millennial reign extends all the way uh, from the resurrection of Christ to the end uh, when Christ returns. But some would say that it is relegated just to heaven and it's spiritual. Others would say that now the church and that it is spreading the gospel, that this is a millennial reign. Now, one man I was listening to uh, made the statement that um, reminding people when it came to this that I'm talking about right here that Satan will be loosed. He said, remember, things will not be as they are will not always be as they are now. And he was saying that things are good right now. But anyway, um, I have a little different view than that. Um, uh, however, um, all mills will constantly state that when Jesus returns, that this is the end. That when he returns, we enter into the eternal state immediately. This stems from the stated belief that there are but two ages mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, this present age, extending from the resurrection of Christ to up to the eternal age to come, and that they are immediately falling one upon the other. However, if we are now in the millennium, uh, either as being part of the church or as in dead saints ruling in heaven with Jesus, and if when Jesus returns, we immediately enter into the eternal state, that leaves no time or space for Satan to be loosed to so as to deceive the nations. To me, this is a real problem for all meals, since the binding of Satan is one of, if not the only part of the passage of Revelation 20 that they view as literal and interpret in a strict way. Um, so to me, this is a huge problem for them, because you have to fit this in. And if we immediately enter into the eternal state, are they going to say that for eternity, Satan is going and deceiving nations? Who are the nations? Who are the ethnic groups? Are Christians to be deceived again? Um, to me, this is a huge problem. Again, I want to stress that I'm no way saying that if a person holds to the all-male position, they are heretics or ignorant. Uh, many people, as I've already said, that have been my heroes throughout history, and throughout church history, have held to this position, and this in no way negates their salvation. We should study to know what we believe and why we believe it. Um, and we should be ready and willing to discuss and defend our views on the end times. But these discussions should remain friendly and respectful. Um, even if at times they become impassioned or they become heated, 
we need to remain respectful. And we need to understand this is an in-house debate. This is an in-house disagreement. There are good, godly people on both sides of the argument. And just because you believe in amillennialism, it does not negate your salvation or say you don't know what you're talking about. And we should understand that. In conclusion, though, in light of all that we have seen today, uh, let's go out and do as Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 10 and verse number 2. Therefore, said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Let us wake up and go out to win a lost world for our Savior and God, Jesus Christ. No matter where you stand on amillennialism, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, there's a lost world that needs to hear the gospel, and that is what we should be focusing on.